All right. Well, good morning, everybody, once again, and uh, thank you to Brandon. Great, um, great job just presenting to us the gospel, reminding us of its truths, and uh, and making it known to anyone in here who doesn't know the gospel. And uh, we pray that you would receive that message, that you would take heed to it, and that you would trust in Christ. And if you can, please open your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. That's the text that the Lord in his providence has given us to focus on this morning, and I would love for you to turn there so that you can walk through it with us as we continue verse by verse through this book. We're almost done here, and uh, just a handful of, or less, just a few messages left, but this has been an incredible book, hasn't it? This has been one of my favorites, and uh, maybe, maybe it's become one of yours uh, without you even knowing that beforehand all the rich content that's in, in this book. And uh, we could have spent uh, double the amount of time, I think, in this book and uh, still not done it justice. But, uh, but God has certainly changed so many people and changed me through this book. I've received so many text messages, so many emails, so many just uh, correspondence with people regarding how the word of God in this particular book is changing them and changing their lives. Um, how impacted they've been through this word. And so um, my encouragement to you is, is if, and I really mean this, if you have missed any uh, amount of these uh, messages uh, through this book, e- even the most recent weeks, um, I really do just encourage you to just go back on our website and just, just listen to every single one of them so that you can just have the entire picture of this book and be caught up and be changed by it and have a real comprehensive grasp. Uh, it would be no good for us to move on, in a sense, to any other books um, that when you haven't really even grasped the ones that we've covered. I want you to store this in your mind and in your heart so that you'll be forever changed and you'll forever know the content of this book. Um, so really do go back and listen. Um, and so as you're turning here, I guess, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, I do want to just mention just very briefly, as I know our elders sent out a message this past week regarding the situation in Israel. And, and if you'd like to see that, you're not a member here, aren't on that uh, email chain or text message thread, um, we can help, uh, help get that to you as well. Um, but we are praying for, for Israel. We are um, grieved by, uh, by what's happening. Um, we do know that God um, has a special place in his heart for the nation of Israel. Those are his chosen people. Um, we do see the absolute um, uh, terror and horror of false religion and what that will do to, um, to a people. Um, this is driven by a, a false religion um, and especially a false religion that uh, sets itself against Yahweh and uh, against his people. Um, we also do pray for Israel because we know that um, even though they have a special place in God's heart, they have in, in uh, a large account have re- rejected the Messiah, Christ. And we want um, uh, God to use this uh, for their turning to salvation in Christ. Um, we also know that uh, God has plans to keep his promise to save uh, Israel to save uh, a certain amount of, of, of Jews in the future. Um, that's his plan uh, for the nation and for those people. And uh, he keeps his promise. The church has not replaced Israel. Israel is Israel and the church is church. 
the church and, um, and God has a special place and he has promises uh, for Israel that he will fulfill in the future. And so these are the, even the preparations uh, for that future. And so continue to pray, continue to pray that God would be glorified and that um, also just pray for all the hurting people, uh, the families, the, the, the husbands, the wives, the children who have met, been brutally murdered. Um, we pray for all people who are suffering. Um, but again, especially Israel, those who God has chosen to be his people by his grace, um, a chosen and special people that have a place in God's heart. And, uh, and, and again, pray specifically uh, that God would come, that he would do his saving work, his, uh, drawing them to the Messiah Christ, and uh, that he would even do his work quickly, uh, bringing ultimate future peace um, through uh, saving, saving his people. And so, uh, so if you have any questions about that situation, we obviously want to help you think through that theologically and practically, and we're, we're here to help you. So let's now turn to our scriptures in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. We're going to read from 12 to 22, and then we're going to cover uh, verses uh, 16 through 18 this morning. So let's read the whole section, 12 through 22, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now this is the passage that we've been studying for some time now, and uh, what we're really seeing in this entire section is Paul and his fellow ministers give this church in Thessalonica a list of commands, a list of encouragements, a list of exhortations to ensure that this church continues to be and grows even more and more into everything that God wants them to be. I mean, this is just a list, rapid fire of commands. He's like an imperative machine gun. He's just shooting commands and encouragements to them so that they are everything that God wants them to be now and as they continue to grow. And so Paul here is just helping this church to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, he, these are fi a final indispensable list of applications. I mean, this is so practical, so straightforward. It doesn't take much to see what's here. And it, the applications here are for them to please God. Uh, this is the way in which they will please God by abiding by these particular instructions. Uh, it's the way that they're going to express their love for God. It's the way that they're going to express their faith in God. It's the way that they'll be sanctified, that they'll grow in maturity. It's the way that they'll match God's righteous character. They'll become more Christ-like. Th these are the ways in which they'll be protected from sin and from the enemy. Uh, this is the way that they'll be effective in reaching the lost for the, the, the glory of Christ. This is the way that they'll honor and glorify God as individuals and as a body. 
This is the way in which God wants these folks and you to live. These are instructions for this church to operate and function in the way that God ordained and in the way that God prescribes for his church. Uh, He has very clear prescriptions for his church and the way it's to function and the way his people are to live. And if they follow his instructions, they'll be everything that he wants them to be. They can't follow the pragmatic tendencies of the world. They can't follow uh, just the wisdom and logic of individuals who say, I think we should live like this. I think the church should function like this. I think we should relate to each other like this. I think our leaders should do this. Well, you have no authority to think that, and nor does anyone else have any authority to give that. It's God's word that instructs the church so that it becomes everything that it is to be. It is to be effective, and it's going to show the glory of God if they function in the way in which God says. So this is the way in which they'll maintain fellowship with God. This is the way in which they'll become holy. This is the way that they'll be healthy and stable and effective and lasting. And so these are just simple instructions And they are straightforward. So this entire series through this section in verses 12 through 22, we've entitled Ecclesiastical Exhortations. That's just, these are just encouragements or appeals or urgings or or commands for the church. That's it. For the believers. And then within this section, we've really seen three divisions, haven't we? We've seen in 12 through 13, In this section, Paul instructs the church about their relationship with their pastors. He's very clear in verses 12 through 13. Uh, We covered that in two messages, how the church is to relate to its pastors. You can go back and listen to that. Secondly, we've seen in verses 14 through 15, Paul clearly changes just a course just a little bit. And Paul commands the church about how they are to relate to one another. That's, those are clearly the, the, the instructions in verses 14 through 15. Paul is instructing the church. Here's how you are to relate to one another. And in those verses, by the way, it's helping the churches to help those who are not quite there yet, who are, who are faint-hearted, who, who are weak. It, it speaks to how the church is to take initiative in, in regards to warning unruly people, ungovernable people in the church. Uh, it, it speaks to how we are not to retaliate as people do uh, maybe sin against us. And so this is the, the, the instruction uh, of how the church is to relate to one another in verses 16 through 22. And then we see in part three of this series, the church's relationship with God. And that's what we're in this, uh, this week. As we move into verses 16 through 22, Paul then, it kind of moves from a more general big picture to a more specific individual picture, how the church is to function in their relationship with God. Uh, it's the individual responsibilities before the Lord, uh, how the individual is supposed to live in, in light and relation to God himself. And so we'll divide this portion into two messages and, and just like we've done in the subsections, the other subsections. But this is regarding the church's relationship to God, these verses are. Paul here, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving now a series of eight commands. These are commands for all the believers in the church to obey, individually but also collectively, right? They, they must encourage one another to to live this out. These are responsibilities, listen now, that every believer in the church must take very seriously. 
these are instructions that every individual should take heed to, and they should encourage one another to take heed to. And so these are instructions for the church to obey. And so this is what God wants for his people. This is, these are instructions, again, for the church to become everything God wants them to be. And so we've already seen that the leaders are the ones who teach and labor among the flock. And so their job is to help the church obey these, these specific commands right here. But also we've seen that the community of the church, the congregation is to help one another. And so again, it's the church's job to help one another obey these commands. But there's a sense of individual responsibility in these last verses here, in verses 16 through 22. You get what I'm saying? We see the leaders, they're supposed to teach. They're the ones who teach and labor among you. So just inherently, these are, these are, this is the job of the leaders to help the people live in this way. And we've already seen, again, the congregation is to help one another. So inherent in this passage is the fact that you guys gotta help each other live like this, what we see in verses 16 through 22. But again, this section here, this portion of scripture in verses 16 through 22, you have this individual responsibility that's kind of at the forefront. And so this is your job as an individual to live like this, to apply these truths to your lives and to become everything that God wants you to be. And if every individual takes the responsibilities very seriously, then the church will be exactly what God desires. And so... What we see here in, in this section is very practical. Now, you gotta understand, again, in the context, we've been walking through this, so I haven't really had to rehash all the context for you in a lot of ways, but these, this is a true church. Listen, these are, these are true believers. This is the, these are those who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember in chapter one, Paul goes to great lengths to tell us that these are chosen people. These are elected people. These are those who God has saved, evidenced by the fruit of their lives. And that's what the true church is, right? The true church is made up of who? Believers. The believers are the church, right? And you have non-believers who come in and you want them to come to know Christ. If you're here and you don't know Christ, we want you to be here. We want you to hear the gospel and be saved. That's why we do it every week, right? That's why we, why we spend so much time following up with you and seeing if we can grab coffee with you, helping you to know the gospel and encouraging the people in our church to follow up with you as well. We want you to know Christ, but by definition, biblically, the church is, is made up of the believers in, in Christ. And so these are true believers, and these are the ones who know Christ. And so this isn't a morality, uh, uh, just an encouragement towards morality. This is an encouragement for people who know Christ to then live in such a way that glorifies and honors God. This is the way in which a believer will live after they have come to know Christ. And, and so we see here that this instruction is for those who have come to know Christ. And, and this is the way that the pattern has been all throughout the Bible, by the way. Uh, when, when God saved his people from, from Egypt in the Exodus, the very next thing he did was give them what? The law. And we see that in the first five books of, of the Bible. In, in light of this great salvation that he has given to his people, he now teaches them how to live in such a way that honors him so that they can have fellowship with him and glorify him and please him and be protected by his care. And so in the same way as God saves us from our sin through the gospel message, he gives us his word to instruct us as to how to live so that we can have fellowship with him and glorify him. So this true church, this true church will be instructed here as to how to live as individuals. And so we've been moving now to this individual focus. 
And this is the way in which they will glorify God. And so let me ask you, as you are thinking about your relationship with God, where is it at? Where is your relationship with, with God individually? How are you doing in your growth, in, in, in your knowledge, in your understanding, in your obedience, in your love for God? I mean, do you spend time with God on a daily basis in the word? Or did you pray a prayer when you were a kid and you became a Christian and, and you've got this all figured out. You've been a Christian for a very long time. Don't worry. You know, we know the truth and we're living, but you have no fellowship with God, no consistent reading of his word, no, no obedience, no repentance. You're not striving to grow in any specific area of your life. You're very rarely here at the church. Uh, you have areas of your life that are not under the sovereign hand of God. Uh, you're not growing in your knowledge of the word. Uh, I mean, you're not serving the Lord with all the gifts that he has given you. Uh, I mean, you can go down the list and say, well, I'm doing really good in my relationship with God, but by evidence, you're really not. And God wants you to grow as an individual. He, he needs you in a sense, to be the ones in whom he's called you to be so that his church can be everything that it's supposed to be. And so this, these are calls to the, to the church to grow in this way individually. So here, as we move into this, listen, this is the way in which you'll have passionate fellowship and love for God. This is the way in which you'll have unwavering trust in the Lord, uh, deep dependence on him, a proper attitude towards him, in a humble reverence. And so let's see here what Paul says. As Paul addresses their relationship with God, he makes it clear, and, and these are our points this morning that will be up on the screen, that God's will for the believer, he makes just this clear. What is his will for every believer? And uh, we're just gonna cover the first three this morning. And that's that they rejoice always, or they have constant joy, that they be in continual prayer, and that they be consistent in their thanksgiving. This is what God wants for the believer in Christ as they focus specifically on their own attitudes and responsibilities. So we see again, Paul list out what God's will is for the believer. You could put that up on the screen, just list, list these out. I think they're up there. But God's will for the believer, and that is constant joy, continual prayer, and consistent thanksgiving. So they'll be up there in a minute. Um, but let's cover this. Let's dive into this. I want you to read these verses once again, verses 16 through 18. It says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for who? For you, for the believers. And so here, as Paul addresses these believers' relationship with God, Paul makes clear God's will, which is to rejoice, to be in prayer, and to be thankful. And you might say, well, this is, how, how do we know this is towards the individual? Well, these are internal, individual responsibilities. They can be corporate, but again, these, these are lived out first by the individual believer. And so what we see here, let's start with the end. Let's start with the last one, which is, uh, start with the end here, which is 18b, which is that this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We're gonna start at the end of this and then we're gonna move back to the top. So Paul starts this section by explicitly stating 
what God's will is for the believer. Look at this. You see in verse 18b, it says this, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, when you see this, you say, well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? He starts with the word for. For is a basis or a ground or an explanatory conjunction moving into the grounds or the basis for everything that he said before it. And so these three instructions that he's gonna give for the individual believer, listen now, the reason why they should obey these commands as individuals is because this is God's will for their lives. And so these are, these are the instructions that God has given to the believer. These are God's will this is God's will for their lives. It's just clear, right? Many people ask the question, what is, I'm trying to figure out what God's will is for my life, right? That's the, that's the big question. What's God's will for my life? How do I know God's will in my life? Or I'm trying to seek God's will in, 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 in all the areas of my lives. Well, let me help you to, to summarize what the Bible teaches about God's will, and then we're gonna get back to this particular portion in verse 18. I'm gonna summarize how you know God's will in just really two points here. Uh, God's will is clearly from the scripture that people are saved, right? That people come to know him. That's God's will for your life, first and foremost, that you have salvation. What's God's will for everyone's life? Is that they repent of their sin and come to know Christ. That's his will explicitly stated in the scripture. And apart from that, nothing else matters. It does not matter if what God's will is for your job if you don't know Christ. It doesn't matter what God's will is for your family if you don't know Christ. It doesn't matter what God's will is in any other area, particularly besides you first and foremost coming to know Christ through salvation. And God says this explicitly, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is his desire. This is his wish. This is his will, that all would reach repentance, faith in Christ. First Timothy 2.4, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Mark 3, 34, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here's my mother and here's my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What's the will? What makes you a brother and sister of Christ and a child of God? It's, it's trusting in Christ. That's his will. And so you have to understand when you ask, what is the will of God? God gives far more about uh, uh, what is in his revealed will about your salvation, about the salvation of people than he does about any particular instance or situation in anyone's life. And so what's God's will? First of all, salvation. And I'm just dividing this into two sections, but the second is sanctification. I mean, God's will for your life is first that you're saved and then that you're sanctified, right? That's his will for your life. That's his will for everybody's life. Uh, turn first to, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Just, just, I don't even know if you have to turn. First Thessalonians chapter three, it says this, for this is the what? Will of God, okay, what is it? Your sanctification. 
is pretty clear. That's his will for, for people's lives. This includes a lot of different areas. First uh, Peter chapter two is explicit that your, his will is that people be submitting to governing authorities, loving other believers, silencing evildoers, living obedient lives. He says, this is God's will for your life. Very clear. Uh, Ephesians 5 uh, speaks very explicitly. Paul says, this is God's will for your life. And then he talks about living a Holy Spirit-controlled life. And so God makes this clear. He makes it clear what his will is. And I'm just summarizing this into two points. But you can see these explicit statements all throughout the scripture for this is God's will for you. And they all really either fall into one or two categories, that you're saved or that you're sanctified. Uh, that's his will for your life. And so how do we live in terms of, uh, of seeking God's will? Well, like I just said, you look first to his revealed will. What's his revealed will? His revealed will is what he reveals in the scriptures. You say, well, he doesn't know any, he doesn't speak about my particular situation. Well, listen, how it operates is that you follow God's revealed will in his word, right? I mean, he, he makes his will clear for people. And then as you live, if it doesn't violate word or conscience, then you do what you want and God opens and closes doors by his providence. That's the way in which you are to live as a Christian. You are to do his word. You're to live out what his word says, and you are to live it out obediently, faithfully, to know what it says, and to live in, obediently in every area of your life what he has revealed in his word, live it out. And then, as it doesn't, if it doesn't violate word or conscience, because God also gives you a conscience to regulate uh, and to, to point to what is evil and bad and what is good. And then he informs that conscience by the word of God as you continue to grow in the word. So if it doesn't violate word or conscience, then you do what you want. And God opens and closes doors by his providence. That, that's just simply how it works. But part of this obedience is, is receiving counsel, is listening to spiritual leaders, uh, is, is using your giftings for his glory, but you gotta know what the word says and you follow what it says. His revealed word is that you're sanctified, says that you're sanctified and that uh, you're saved and that you're sanctified. That's his, his plan for your life. And you gotta understand that the word of God is paradigmatic in, uh, paradigmatic in, in that way. It's, it's, it speaks of generalities. It doesn't speak to maybe your specific situation, but these principles proceed to uh, apply to every area of your life. And that's the way in which we apply God's word is that, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, in, the, in the Pentateuch, we have some 601 uh, or 602, I think, uh, laws of God given in the, in the first five books of the Bible in, in the law. And you just might say, well, those laws don't apply to, to my life specifically. So how do I know in, in this specific situation? Well, these are general principles that, that, uh, that go beyond the specific situation into your life. And so you have to understand the principles of God in his word and apply them to your life. And you can follow promptings. God, you know, some people say, well, I think this is God's will in my life. I, I feel prompted by the spirit. That's okay to talk like that. It's, but it's not okay to say God is speaking to me about this and I'm gonna follow that because you have no way to know if that's God's voice or not. Uh, outside of the apostolic era, you can't say, I'm sure that this is God's voice. He's speaking to me and look to it as authoritative voice in your life. How do you know? 
There's no way that you can confirm that is God speaking to you in a specific area. So once again, you follow God's revealed will in his word. If it doesn't violate word or conscience, you do what you want and God in his providence open and closes doors. Uh, you can of course follow promptings that you might feel are right or uh, that God might be moving in your heart in some way and God will confirm or deny those by again, his providence opening and closing doors. And so we understand what God's will is and it's more to do with the spiritual life that permeates every area of your specific life um, than it has to do about your particular situation, right? You might wanna know what person to marry. Well, apply the, the revealed will of God in his word, the principles that he gives, and then you continue to apply those as you make the decision, what job to take. You understand the principles of God's word and you continue to apply those principles as you make your decision. And you follow what you think is right and God in his providence will open and close doors. But what happens is that we see God give these explicit statements in the scriptures. We know his whole, the, you, you could turn to the end of Revelation and say, for this is God's will for you. The whole Bible is is God's revealed will. So we have these, though, these explicit statements in all these areas of scripture in which God chooses to reiterate, this is God's will for you. And so Paul is doing the same thing here. It's not that the whole scripture is in God's will, but what he says here in verse 18, for this is God's will for you, it helps the believer to recognize once again, these are not just a series of suggestions. This is what God wants for every believer. It's not to obey this when you can and then don't obey uh, when, when you choose. This is an explicit statement here by Paul under divine inspiration so that these believers in Thessalonica will remember, understand, recognize that these particular attributes or these particular applications are what God wants. So what does he say? He says here again, for this, what's this? For this, look at verse 18, he says, for this, again, what's this? Well, it's what he's about to say, uh, what he's said and what we're gonna look at in verses 16 and 17. For is the reason, this, what's this? Again, verses 16 and 17, and what is it? It's the will of God. These, this is what pleases God and pleases Christ. And this is the will of God for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. You see that in verse 18? So this is for the church. So what are the things in which Paul is saying is the will of God for the believers? Well, back to verse 16. Let's go back to the top. He says, number one, constant joy. Constant joy. And you can see how these relate to your relationship with God, right? These aren't corporate efforts. I don't know what's going on with the screens here, but... Um, just listen close. The, the first is constant joy. Constant joy, verse 16. That's the first element here as God describes the will, his will for the believer individually, constant joy. Constant joy. Let me just tell you that this has more to do with your relationship with God, you having joy, than anything else. This is reflective of your relationship with God, that you have constant joy. Verse 16, he says, he says, we have it like this in the ESV, rejoice, what? Always. There's two words in the Greek here, literally, 
meaning at all times, be rejoicing. At all times, be rejoicing. It's very clear, very clear. It, the, the word here means the, the, the state of happiness or well-being or, or gladness, right? Some people say, well, happiness is different than joy, maybe. We really don't, it's really, uh, that we don't have necessarily a biblical teaching that points us to the different. Really, it's actually the opposite. If you look at the scriptures, they point to happiness uh, being those who are, are blessed. The, the people of God who are blessed are the ones who are happy in the Lord, right? Uh, because of what God has done. And that happiness is a lasting joy. It's a true joy. It shouldn't be temporary. So it's really the same thing here, but he says this state of happiness, well-being, and gladness should what be what believers have at all, what? All times. It's pretty simple. But you know what's interesting here is that this is, imper- this is in, the, in the imperative form. This is a command. This is a command. Be happy, right? That's what God is commanding you. He's saying, he's looking at you and saying, you better be happy. You better be joyful, right? That's, that, this is a command. You say, well, how can he command me to be happy, right? That, how, how, how could he do that? Well, because joy is not passive. You're not inactive in it. It's not just that you're reactive, to the situation or just a receiver of whatever emotion comes to you. You're not subject to your circumstances, which dictates whether or not you have joy. He can only command this if you could actually obey it. And so we see and understand just from that idea is that joy should be fought for. This is how everything in the Christian life works. Listen now, it all starts in your mind. The way in which he's able to command this is because you can have control over whether or not you have joy. That you can have joy at all times. He wouldn't be saying this if that's not what his ex- if that wasn't his expectation. You can have joy at all times, and you should as a Christian. This is the mark of a Christian life: joy. And you should have joy at all times. And 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 it's just like everything else in in the Christian life. Everything starts in the mind. Your mind is informed by the word. This doesn't start with your affections. It starts with your mind, joy does. Your mind is informed and renewed by the knowledge of the word. And as your mind is renewed, your heart is affected. Your affections are affected. And then you live out what you know from the word of God in your life, practically. And so this should be worked on as something to be attained. You should be specifically saying, I'm going to work on obeying God in this area, having joy at all times. And that's something that you should make part of your life. You know, by the way, you don't repent generally, you repent specifically. So if you're hoping to grow as a Christian, you're gonna grow really slow if you just have this general idea of growth. If you target specific areas of your life that you know need to grow and to be more Christ-like, and then you memorize scripture and you 
and you and you work hard at obeying God in these areas. Put in the spiritual sweat that you need to in order to change and and repent and obey. If you specifically target areas in your life as a believer, you will grow um, really quickly in those areas, and then you move on to the next area. We don't just grow generally. Uh, we we must target specific areas of our lives, and this is an area in which we can target. And so. And so we understand that joy is not subjective in, its, in just having feelings um, because Paul here is, is commanding this. And so if you're not joyful, then it's going to begin again, like the scriptures point to in your mind. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Remember this? We just read it. Rejoice in the Lord. How, how often? Always. And he says it again. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace that, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. But look what he says right after this major command here to rejoice. He says, whatever is what? True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, what are you to do with those things? Think about them. How are you to obey the command of being joyful? You are to think about the truth. It, it, this begins in your mind. Most of you are unhappy because your mind is thinking about everything other than the truth. Right? Wishing your house was bigger. Wishing you had more money. Wishing your kids were nicer. Wishing your wife was like this wishing your husband was like that, right? Wishing you drove that car, wishing you had this career, et cetera. And you wonder, of course you're unhappy. All you're doing is, is focusing on, uh, on fleshly things of the world that are never gonna be perfect. But you direct your focus to the, to the word of God and to the truth of his word and it will have an effect on every other area of your life. And you choose to look at those things as the most important things. Paul's not naive here. Paul spoke plenty about other emotions in the scriptures. He, he spoke of being sorrowful. He, he spoke of being burdened. He, he spoke of feeling distressed. He's not naive. He knows that there are other emotions that you are going to feel as a human being in a fallen world. But yet in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, when speaking of a sorrowful situation, he says, we are sorrowful, yet we're always what? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He's not naive to, under, to, to not understand that we're going to experience other emotions, but we are to rejoice at all times as believers because of very particular things that we know in our minds that are more important than any other things. And if they're not more important, then you're out of touch with reality, right? If the things of the, the, the word of God says, the truth of God's word is not more important to you than your house or, or your job or your situation or your whatever it might be, then you're out of touch with reality. You have to reorient your life so the things of God are the most important so that when you dwell on those truths, it actually does affect your, your life. So what is the Christian to be joyful about? 
Well, listen, we should be more joyful than anybody else on the planet. You should be more joyful than anybody else on the planet. Why? Well, what about salvation? Think about Christ's work. Here's just some reasons for you to be joyful. Think about Christ's work. Psalm 51, 12, he says, restore to me the, what? Joy Joy of your salvation. The the joy of the salvation that you have given is what what should be in our hearts. Romans 5, 1 through 2, uh, Brandon read it earlier. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so we understand this great salvation that God has given and we have joy in it. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Psalm 32 said, blessed, look at this, blessed meaning happy. That's why I say the scriptures really don't give a category for a difference between happy and joy. This blessed means happy, right? Uh, Blessed, happy, is the one who's what? Transgression is forgiven. Isn't that you? Isn't that us? And that's the people of God in Christ? Happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. We should be happy about our salvation. All my sin and my past, present, and future sin has been forgiven by the work of Christ in salvation. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Can you believe it? that the Lord will count against you no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all the day. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, speaking to the just awareness of his sin. But then he acknowledged his sin to the Lord. And by the way, that's what we all do when we turn from our sin and trust in Christ. We said, we will confess our transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found so they can have this same forgiveness. You're our hiding place, he says. Verse 10, go down. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Turn to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. And just think about this picture here of what Paul is painting regarding salvation. I just want you to understand this. Paul says this, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is about salvation. Watch this progression here. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, 
things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the true gospel of your salvation and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You know what he's going through here? I mean, predestination, election. Then he proceeds to work in the believer's life. Then he redeems the believer. He gives forgiveness. I mean, this goes through the whole process of, of God choosing, God saving, God redeeming, uh, then God uh, giving his spirit to those who are in Christ, sealing them with the promised Holy Spirit and guaranteeing their future inheritance. I mean, this is all that we receive in Christ Jesus. And so we praise God for even his electing work and salvation. I'm gonna move through these other ones just rather quickly, but you should rejoice in your, that not only that you're just forgiven of your sin, but that now you have fellowship with God. You should rejoice in your fellowship with God. Verse 43, 4, uh, Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. Who's the exceeding joy? God. God should be your exceeding joy. You should have great delight in the person of God. You know, I see a lot of Christians out of balance in terms of their lives to where it becomes about what they do and not about who they know. And you gotta make sure you maintain that. This is about God. This is about your relationship and fellowship with God. You should have God as your exceeding joy, the one in which you get to know and fellowship with on a regular basis as you spend time in his word and prayer and as you share him with others. God is your exceeding joy. What about the satisfying love that he has for the believer? That should make you rejoice that God loves you. I mean, shouldn't that make you the happiest person on the planet? That God loves you? Psalm 90 verse 14 says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. You're satisfied in the morning with God's love and then you have joy in your day, right? What about what the, what the spirit of God is doing in you? Galatians chapter five says the fruit of the spirit is love, what? Joy. And this sanctification that the spirit is producing in you, here's what happens to the believer. You begin to love righteousness, don't you? The just righteousness is, begins to bring you great joy, living with great righteous, uh, a, a righteous life. Psalm 35, 27, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for what? For joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. You should have great joy in your heart because of the righteousness that God is producing in your life. You love the great things and the good things of God. God's providence in your life. Think about this. What you should rejoice in is the fact that you know God is working in your life and he will work all things out for your good. You, you, you might have a lot of situations that you haven't figured out in your life, but you should just have this continual joy that you know God is working on your behalf. He's just working everything out. You can just say, I'm just gonna trust him. It's almost like a reckless, almost in a sense, a, a reckless trust. I'm just going to trust God. He's providentially working all things 
through in your life. And in that, in that you should have joy. You might be trying to figure out a situation, but then in the back of your mind, you know, God's committed to working things out in my life for what is best. And so Psalm 28, seven says, the Lord is my strength and my shield and my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and I will, uh, with my song, I give thanks to him. Exalt meaning rejoice in. And so, and so this is the life of the believer knowing that God can be trusted because he is working in my life. This leads to joy. What about the fact that you get to be part of God's mission? that he's gifted you for service. Psalm 48 says, I rejoice to do your will. Does he bring you great joy to serve him with your gifts and do his will in your life? You should rejoice to do his will. I can't, I, I'm so happy I get to go share the gospel with this unbelieving person because I get to be part of God's will. I rejoice to do his will, to obey him, to live out the responsibilities. Paul said in Philippians 1.18, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. You should rejoice in that. What about the satisfying word of God that he gives us? Psalm 119 is just filled with how the word of God brings the believer, what? Joy. You should look to the word of God and say, this word is so satisfying. I love reading it and spending time in it. It brings me joy. And then what about your future hope? Luke 10, 20, you should rejoice that your names are written in what? In heaven. You should rejoice in that. And so in light of all the great truths and the blessings of who God is and what he's done for the life of, uh, for, for the believer, for the future, for the salvation and how he includes him in his plan and how he's faithful to him, we should rejoice. And this is all over the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 18 says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. In Nehemiah 8.10, it says, as they were grieved about their sin, but then they repented and turned back to the Lord. And Nehemiah said, don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And James 1 even talks about how we should be rejoicing in trials, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because God's doing a work in your life. And so here's what George Mueller said. He said, I never allow myself to begin the day without facing before God anything that has left me unhappy or distressed because I want to be before him always in a spirit of joyfulness. And so you should wake up in the morning and lay everything you can that's burdensome before the Lord so that it's on him. Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then you should turn and remember with your mind the truths of the word and what God has done for you in Christ and who he is. And rejoice in your relationship with him. You need to change your mind. You need to choose to focus on these things, to think about these things. And then you might have the joy of the Lord and you need to work on it specifically. Let me say this real quick. I know we're um, spending most of our time on this, but I think it's so important. What does your joy or lack thereof say about God to the unbelieving world? What does it say about God to your children? If you are one who consistently has no joy in the Lord, you know what that says to the, to, to the people who are watching your life? Say, well, I, I don't know that following the Lord is, is really worth it. I don't, I don't even know if this person really wants to follow the Lord. I, I don't even know if, if God is trustworthy or doing anything great in the believer's life. And so by you being joyful in the Lord, it's also a testimony to those who are watching as to who God is 
It glorifies him. And so you need to work on this. We need to work on having joy. This is what Paul wants for the, for the believer. This is when the church will be everything that God wants it to be. Let's turn now to, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter five, if you're not there, and just briefly cover these other two here. You are not only to be constantly joyful, but you are to be continual in prayer. Verse 17 says this. Pray without what? Ceasing. These are pretty short verses, aren't they? Two words again. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In the Greek, two words. I mean, it just says the same thing. It's just a different word for at all times or always. I mean, he's just saying the same thing. I could, I could really just say constant joy, constant prayer, constant thanksgiving, right? I mean, I'm just other C words that mean the same thing here. But it's continual, it's constant, it's continual, it's unceasing, it means be praying. And this is again, a command, pray. Every aspect of prayer is included here. But he says, at all times or continually or unceasingly, be praying. So at all times, be joyful. And at all times, be praying, right? That's what your life should look like as a believer in Christ. You should always, always be praying. And you might say, well, what am I supposed to do? I, I can't, I, you know, get on my knees every, you know, stay on my knees all day. I got to do things, you know? Well, that's not what he's saying here. He, he's saying that in every situation, in every circumstance, at all times, in every season, in every place that you find yourself in, on a continual basis throughout the day, that you're going to the Lord in prayer regularly. That you're always going to the Lord in prayer uh, as you go throughout your day. Right, And this includes every aspect of prayer. Turn to Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six, we see in there the Lord's prayer. You said, well, what aspects should be in my prayers? Well, Matthew chapter six, when Jesus said, here's how to pray, here's how he taught his people to pray. We should probably pay attention to that, huh? If Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, then we should look at this regularly as to how to pray. He says, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, these are not words that you are to just repeat mindlessly as the Catholic church has taught. Uh, these are words that have categories that are, are teaching the believers categories, various categories in which um, they should be praying to God, right? And so what are these categories? Well, we see the idea that uh, we meditate on the truth. He calls God his father, right? We understand our relationship to God. There's a recognition of God, right? God is in heaven. We, we see him say, hallowed be your name right, who he is, and even a pleading that God's name would be hallowed on the earth, that people would see him as he is and holy. So there's this adoration and praise and desire for God to accomplish his will. We see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God's will, don't we? It's this idea that we wanna pray that God would accomplish his will. There's this supplication and petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us everything we need, right? There's this confession of sin, forgive us of our debts. 
There's a confession and then there's a reorienting our lives as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. There's a help from sin, lead us not into temptation. There's this petition uh, for, for all these things. And, and so you can pray these and, and every other category uh, that you can think of as you just go to God and spend time and have fellowship with, with him on a regular basis. And prayer recognizes the sovereignty of God. And so listen now, what you should be doing as a believer in Christ is continually going to God in prayer. That means as you drive to work, as you think about areas of need in your life, as you need God to help you, how often do you spend all day worrying about your situation? And you never once looked to God and spoke to him about the situation in prayer. You never once asked him for help to work in the heart of the person that you're in conflict with. You, you never once sought his face for wisdom as to how to deal with your situation. You never once asked him to do the work that only he can do in, in your life. You know what's disappointing is over the years, and I don't say this to condemn us, but to call us to something greater, is that our prayer gatherings here that, we, that various people have started have been the, the lowest attended um, uh, event, so to speak, in the life of our church. I, I wish that there would be a prayer gathering here once a week, that people would come and pray and beg God for different things for their lives and for our church. I, I wish that there'd be a group praying before our services and even pull me in. Hey, hey, Pastor Sam, we gotta pray together so God does his work in the service. What about a team of people praying during the service? that God would use his word to, to convict people. I mean, we need to be a church to, that prays. What about the salvation of your kids? I mean, do you ever even pray for it? Are you just trying to use your own strength to, to figure it out? Oftentimes, I, you know, I used to sit at, at Starbucks all the time and I would watch people just come in and out and in and out and be so busy with all the important things that they had to do in their lives, right? I was so busy. I got a, you know, my work suit on and I, I got to stay busy. I got to accomplish this and accomplish that and, and all these important things. And, and again, if they don't know Christ and nothing that they do is, is really even important at all, right? They're giving their lives as something that's meaningless. But I just think about in the, in the general sense, like, do they just wake up and think that by their own strength, they can accomplish everything that they need to accomplish for that day and that it's gonna make any kind of difference? But oftentimes we as Christians live like that. We wake up and we say, I'm gonna operate today in my own strength, by my own wisdom, and I can accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished. And as a result, we live a lifetime like that and we never accomplish anything of significance for eternity. Listen, if we want God to do what only he can do, then we need to be the people who are praying more than anybody else, right? This should be a church that we're, this is the picture that Paul's trying to paint here. This, this body of Christ, of all these individual believers who are truly in the Lord, who are always joyful because of what God has done and who are just constantly going to God in prayer all the time, every situation, their first reflex is to talk to God about it, to ask God about it, uh, to, to, to beg God to do it. This should be the, the, the posture of our, of our hearts. Now I'm just gonna move to this last one here. But let me ask you before I do, just how are you doing at this? How are you doing at, at being continually in a state of praying to God, talking to God, asking God, begging God, 
thanking God, worshiping and praising God. Do you pray? You should be spending a significant amount of time in prayer on a daily basis, on a daily basis. Not, you shouldn't remember, well, yeah, I prayed twice this week. This means that throughout your day, you should be in and out of praying and talking to God. That's what it means, praying continually. Can you imagine what God would do in this church and in your life if, you would be, if you'd live like that? God promises to answer prayer. And so you'd have to be silly not to take advantage of that opportunity to talk to God. Number three here, we see constant thanksgiving. And um, in 1 Thessalonians, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter five, he says, we need to be thankful, right? What's the will of God for the lives of the believers? Is that they be always rejoicing, that they be, that they be continually praying, and that they would be consistently thankful. Thankful. This is what he wants for their lives, for them to be thankful. Again, literally here, in every situation, in every season, you are obligated to be thanking God, to be expressing your thanks for God. And uh, we're gonna pick up with this again next week. I'll just speak more just because our time is out here. But what a, what a picture for our lives. And you can ask yourself, what what... What's your attitude in regards to being thankful? Let me pray for us, but I want you to understand that this is what God wants our church to be. He wants to be a people who are constantly rejoicing, who are continually praying, and who are constantly giving thanks to God. Again, I'll cover this one just briefly next week as we move on uh, in the passage, but let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We need to be people who are who are always, always giving thanks to you. We need to be people who are consistently rejoicing because of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. We need to be people who are continually praying to you in and out of our days at all times, that we would be always praying, that we would be always looking to you Lord, we love you and, and we wanna be the church that you call us to be. And this place has to be full of people who have great joy and, who people, and people who are giving uh, continual thanks and, and people who are constantly communicating with you, their God. So I pray that you would do this work in us in Jesus' name, amen.